Well, good evening. Lovely uh, to be with you. We're going to start our series proper, Joseph and the Gospel of Many Colours. This was one of those weeks um, where I started on Monday, and I didn't really get the passage until Wednesday afternoon, having spent a lot of time in it. And I hope as we look at it, you'll see uh, some of the hard work that's gone into putting this together. It's called uh, juxtaposition. This is Ziona Chana. That's his name. He is the head of the biggest family in the world. He's also the head of a polygamous Christian cult known as Chana, after himself. He has 39 wives, 94 children, 14 daughters-in-law, and 33 grandchildren. The family live in a 100-room, four-story house in Bekawang village in India. The family, all 167 of them, are organized with military precision. A normal evening meal requires 30 chickens, 132 pounds of potatoes, and 220 pounds of rice. The interview that Zayona Chana did um, with the Guardian newspaper, he was asked, how does your family stay together? And he said, my family is a harmonious picture of mutual love, care, and respect. My family is a harmonious picture of mutual love, care, and respect. Well, as we climb into Genesis chapter 37 and the beginning of the Joseph story proper, we see Jacob has 35 less wives, 81 less children, but it is anything but a picture of mutual love, care, and respect. It is a messy, grisly, sordid, and divided rabble of schemers, murderers, liars, and haters. It is reading portions of scripture like the ones we're about to read that we have cause to doubt whether 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 is true. We're forced to ask, is this really inspired scripture? Is this really breathed out by God? Is it actually useful to us? How can it correct us, teach us? What will it do to train us in righteousness? Well, my hope is by the time that we all leave tonight, we'll go, this is a, a real portion of scripture. This isn't just something that Moses inserted to fill up the pages because he wanted to get 50 chapters as a nice round number. But for that to happen, we need God's help. So why don't we pray together? Paul rejoiced that whilst in Ephesus, he said, I have proclaimed the whole counsel of God and not shrunk back. So Lord, as we come to this section of your word, that we would, in all honesty, prefer to skip over. Would you speak to us through it? Would you do it for Jesus' sake? And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 37. So we're going to call chapter 37 the white sheep of the family. The white sheep of the family, referring to Joseph, who seems to be a stellar example of faithfulness, 
amidst a rabble of black sheep. First thing I'd love you to do is look at chapter 37, verse 2. Do you see how that starts? This is the account of Jacob's family life. That phrase is what's called a toledoth saying. And there's 11 of them in Genesis. The first one's in chapter 2, verse 4, when it says, these are the generations of how the earth came into being. The second one is chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, these are the generations of Adam. And then we get all the characters that we mentioned last week with this toledoth saying. Chapter 37, verse 2, is the last toledoth saying, the 11th toledoth saying in Genesis. And it refers to Jacob and his family. In fact... Genesis 37 verse 2 is the last Toledoth saying in the whole of the Old Testament. Because from this moment on, the entire story will be focused around this genealogy. The genealogy of Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, and God's dealing with them throughout the remaining 38 books of the Old Testament. There's one other Toledoth saying in the Bible. And it comes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That when God does a new thing through his son to create a new Israel, there's a new Toledoth saying. And a new Toledoth saying that we're all a part of. As those welcomed as children of God through the Lord Jesus. When God starts a new thing with a new Israel formed in and through his son, he says, I want to mark this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And so we move on and we learn about Joseph. It's funny that it's Jacob's family, but the first character we're we're introduced to is Joseph. And actually, he's going to be the main character for the remaining 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. He has more ink written about him in Genesis than anybody else. He is a big player. And we're all very familiar with the story. When I was growing up, we were one of the posh families who had a car with a CD player. And the only CD we actually owned was Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoats. So by the age of 12, I could pretty much recite the whole thing by heart. And I would give you a rendition, but I am keen that you'll stay and not depart. Joseph is the ostracized brother. And I think as we see the first 11 verses unfold, we see just how ostracized he is. Do you see in the remainder of verse 2, he's working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. That these are the, the, the sons of the two slave women, Rachel's slave and Leah's slave. That it seems like even amongst the legitimate brothers, the daughters of Rachel and Leah, and the daughters of the um, slave women, he seems to be thrown towards the slave women. That he seems to be treated by his brothers as not the real deal, not a legitimate son. And then verse 3. We read now, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the others. Jacob loves Joseph most, even though he's the 11th born son. He loves him the most. Why does he love him the most? Well, the passage says because he was born to Jacob in his old age. 
But also he's the first son of Rachel. Jacob's one true love. The one that he really wanted to marry. The one that he worked 14 years in order that he could be married to her. Do we love that passage in Genesis? One of the most romantic bits in the Bible. That Joseph worked for seven years, but it seemed like merely days. Because his love for Rachel was so great. And so Joseph, Rachel's firstborn son, becomes his favorite. And isn't it strange how Jacob repeats the sins of his father, Isaac? That what um, predetermined Jacob's early life? Well, it was the fact that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. And here we are, the sins of fathers repeated in their children. That Jacob loves Joseph most. And he wants to show this, he wants to mark this by giving Joseph a coat of many colors. Although to really ruin it for you, the Hebrew doesn't really suggest many colors. It simply says many threads. And lots of people are coming around to the idea that it's not many threads of many colors, but many threads because it was a long sleeve coat that went down to his ankles. It was an ornate robe and the significance is enormous because you give this coat to somebody in middle management. You give this coat to somebody who's not going to be scrabbling around doing the manual labor. What Joseph is actually doing in this passage is he's giving Joseph a promotion. He's promoting him from amongst his brothers to be an overseer over his brothers. And do you see this? Joseph, who's already ostracized by his brothers, that's been compounded massively. That's been compounded massively by somebody being promoted from among their peers. And so hatred... The spark of jealousy is turned to an inferno of hatred. Joseph um, compounds the issue. God gives him a dream of these sheaves bowing down to Joseph. Joseph's sheaves. And then there's picture of the stars bowing down to Joseph with the moon and the sun as well. So it's compounded. The gap, the gulf that existed between them is widening and widening and widening. Do you see how many times it says that they hated him? Look at verse 4. They hated him and could not speak a kind word about him. Verse 5. They hated him all the more. Verse 8. End of. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him. This is absolute hatred for their brother, Joseph. And so it moves on in verse 12 that Joseph now has this executive role. So while all his brothers go to do the heavy, serious shepherding, Joseph stays at home to do the paperwork and play Minesweeper on the PC. Until it comes that Jacob wants Joseph to go and do a site visit. Until he says, I think it's time you went to check on the flock and your brothers as well. 
this is a very serious, this is a very dangerous and very distant mission. It's dangerous because of the place. The place they camped is Shechem. This has real significance. Because back in Genesis chapter 34, a guy called Shechem steals the brother-sister Dina. He abducts her, he defiles her, and he tries to make her his wife. And Simeon and Levi deceive the Shechemites. As they say, yeah, you can have our sister, but we insist that you're all circumcised. And so all the Shechemites are circumcised, and while they're still sore, it says, after the third day, Levi and Simeon butcher them all. And then as they're all dead, all the other brothers come and they plunder the city. And now Jacob is sending Joseph to this place to check up on those brothers who are shepherding the flock there. It's also distant that where Jacob and Joseph are and where Shechem is is about 50 miles. That's a long journey by foot to do a site visit. And Joseph, in response, says the only words he says in the whole chapter. He says, as it's put in the NIV very well, the literal is, here I am. It's the word of an obedient son carrying out the will of their father. So obediently, Joseph goes on the long and dangerous journey to do a site inspection. And he gets to Shechem, and there's no flocks, and there's no brothers. Now, if Joseph was a legalist, he'd go home at that point. I remember growing up that my mum told me to tidy my room. So I did, but I simply took all the mess out of my room and threw it on the landing. And I said to my mum, my room is tidy. The landing, that's your business. It hurt a lot. That's what legalists do. They do just enough. Joseph gets to Shechem. There's no brothers. He should have gone home. But he chats to a man who says, they've gone to Dothan. Dothan's another 13 miles. 50 plus 13 is a 63-mile journey. And his brothers see him coming. A plan is hatched. And then they know by killing Joseph, they will end his delusions of grandeur. And will certainly make sure that the dream of bowing down to him will never happen. Reuben seems to be like a good guy because he steps in. He says, let's not get blood on our hands. Let's just throw him in the pit and leave him to die. Although it seems from the reading of verse 29 that Reuben wants to come back later and save Joseph. Perhaps to get back in Jacob's good books, having already slept with Bilhah, Jacob's wife, in chapter 35, verse 22. So Reuben thinks if he can bring Joseph back unharmed, he'll be back in the good books. So they strip him. And they throw him in the pit, and then they care so little that they have lunch. They sat down for a sandwich, verse 25. And then an Ishmaelite caravan arrives. 
And Judah, Judah sees a way not just not to get blood on his hands, but to make a pretty penny as well. And so Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. And then they deceive Jacob. They kill a goat. They dip in his robe. They take it back to their dad. And they play the innocent, we found this. Do you know whose it is? And Jacob is utterly inconsolable. Well, that's the famous story. But what do we make of it? What sort of things are we supposed to make of this? Is it the application that if your brothers are shepherding in the distance, don't go? Is it try and drive a higher price with the Ishmaelites if you're selling your brother? What are we to do? Well, I think there's three things that I think massively help us in this passage. Uh, this passage is there to help us with and to teach us. Here's the first. Obedience doesn't mean comfort. Obedience doesn't mean comfort. Moses is very clear in this passage. He gives nothing about how Joseph feels, what Joseph does. It says nothing about whether he's stirring them all the time by playing the superiority card. It says nothing that every time he came into his brother's presence, he was wearing the robe and pretending that he was on a Milan catwalk. None of that. All it simply says is Joseph was obedient. Joseph obeyed. And at every point Joseph obeys, things didn't get better for him, they got worse. He did exactly what was expected of him, and at every point he paid the price. Same in our lives. Being obedient to the Lord Jesus is no guarantee of a comfortable life. In fact, obedience to Jesus leads to more hatred, being despised, being spoken against, being ridiculed, being belittled, than if you just stay quiet and fit in. Obedience does not mean comfort. And unless we know that, we'll be surprised when it gets tough. We'll be surprised when the road gets rough and steep. We'll be like the seed that falls on the rocky ground, that will receive the word with joy, but have no root. So when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the gospel, immediately we'll fall away. There is a real cost to following Jesus, a tangible cost to being obedient to him. And unless we realize that, we will not weather the storm. Unless we see that obedience to Jesus is the most important thing that comes at the highest price, we'll always sit down. Remain quiet and blend in. Point number two. God is never mentioned but everywhere present. God is never mentioned but everywhere present. I think what we see in this chapter is that God is awesome in his providence. Though he is not mentioned, we see his hand in every um, sentence, every um, act 
moving his pieces around the board so that Joseph will be in just the right place when the crunch time comes. Providence, according to the Westminster Confession, says this. Providence is that God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures, actions and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy care according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness and mercy. Let me just point out six um, examples of this. Number one, Joseph is in a dysfunctional family. That seems to massively play into the unfolding of the story. The presentation of an ornate robe only widens the gulf between Joseph and his brothers, meaning that when we get to crunch point, they want to kill him or at least sell him. Point three, he gets to Shechem, and it just so happens there's a man in Shechem who knows where his brothers are in Dothan. Number four, they throw him in a cistern, and Moses is so clear. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Joseph wasn't treading water until the Ishmaelites arrived. There was no water in it. Point five, the caravan arrived at just the right time. Point six, last verse. He ended up being sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Some people will say this is just chance. It's just happenstance. But I think Moses is inviting us to see it as providence. God is not like some grand chess master who sees what's happening and then reacts. But God knows the end from the beginning. He knows how the story is to unfold. Yes, everyone does what they see fit to do. But they only actually end up doing what God has predestined to happen. An awesome providence. God's hand of providence moving the pieces around the board for his glory and the ultimate blessing of many, many people. And it's the same in your life. God very seldom, at least in my life, miraculously intervenes in my day to day. That never happens really. But he is providentially guiding each of our lives providing what we need, bringing chance encounters with people for whom we can influence for the Lord Jesus. Providentially bringing into our lives a church family whom we can walk through life with to encourage us and spur us on to love and good deeds. But we need eyes to see it or else we'll miss it. That God is doing infinitely more behind our backs than he is in front of our face. And it's only as we look back and see his kindness, his goodness, his sovereignty, and his providence in our lives that we really start to give him thanks for all that he's been doing. Point three, this is a shadow story. In Hebrews it talks about things that happened in the Old Testament are like shadows of things to come. This story about an obedient son who goes on a long journey out of obedience to his father, who ends up being rejected by his own and sold for silver and suffers at the hands of wicked men, 
yet ultimately leads to saving many, is a shadow of a better story. A better story of a greater obedient son who goes on a greater journey from the glories of heaven to the squalor of earth, who came to his own and his own did not receive him, who was betrayed for silver into the hands of wicked men, who nailed him to a cross, and through this God would be pleased to save many, even you and me. Now we need to be very careful when we read the Old Testament that we don't allegorize. That we don't try and see Jesus under every stone and round every corner in every symbol. But I think if we read Acts 7 and Stephen's speech before he gets stoned, this is exactly what he says. That just as Joseph was rejected by his brothers, so you rejected the Lord of life, the Messiah, when he came. That's exactly how Stephen uses the story. And so we see that Joseph is the white sheep of the family. And we learn that obedience doesn't mean comfort. That God is never mentioned but everywhere present. And that it's a shadow, a type of things to come. And so if you thought that was grisly, chapter 38 knocks the socks off it. Well, it seems like a very strange interlude, doesn't it? Like we had Joseph, who we know about, and he ends up in Egypt, and we're expecting Potiphar's wife. But we get this really awkward interlude about Judah and this rather sordid chain of events. Judah's debauchery is put before the unfolding of the rest of the story. Yet, it is an important link. Not just in the Joseph story, but in the remainder of our Bible. And I want to just take five minutes to show you why. The first thing we see is this, that Judah goes down. It's written even more explicit than it captures it in the NIV. It says Judah went down from his family and he turned aside to see his friend, um, the Adullamite named Hira. He went down and he turned aside. And the way that language is always used is about rebellion. In the rest of the Bible is the same word used of Jonah, who goes down to Joppa and down into the ship. It's that same idea. Judah is leaving the covenant family and the covenant land, saying, I want nothing to do with any of you now. He's turned aside. And then we see his lust. He saw, he took, he went into her. It's that explicit. He sees Shua, he took Shua, he went in to Shua. And Shua's a Canaanite. The very people who um, are not to marry God's chosen people. We see the lengths that Abraham goes to to get a wife for Isaac who's not from the surrounding region. Do you know that great story where the servant goes and he hangs out on the side of town and this girl comes along and she waters his camels so he thinks, oh, she must be the one. Because Isaac is to marry one of God's covenant people and here we see Judah going completely the other way. It's a rapid decline. 
Judah isolates himself and we see so quickly he gets into all sorts of trouble. See that in our church, don't we? That people isolate themselves and they wander away and all too quickly the decline is rapid. I wonder if God would place on our hearts those that we used to see a lot and now not so much and I wonder if he would send us to reach out to them and bring them back before they get into deep and desperate difficulty. He takes Shua as a wife and they have three sons. And it seems when it comes to registering the birth, Judah's lost for words, so he calls the first one Ur. He calls the second one Onan. And then he calls his third son Sheila, which doesn't sound like a very masculine name for a boy either. And then he sets about getting them all married. And so Ur marries Tamar. There's only one problem, though. Verse 7. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. He's judged in real time. And in this sight, they have Leverite marriage, although Leverite marriage isn't going to be um, written down until Leviticus 25. Where that if your elder brother dies, your responsibility is to marry his wife and to bring her into the family home and provide heirs. Most famous example of that is Ruth and Boaz. And so Tamar marries Onan. The only problem is, is that Onan is also evil. And he is killed. He wants to not produce an heir for Ur. And the Lord judges him, verse 10. So the Lord put him to death also. So it seems that Tamar's last hope of her husband and having offspring for Ur is Sheila. But Judah's afraid that Tamar is a witch. And so in verse 11, he deceives Tamar. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. But it's an excuse for he thought he might, die, he might die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar, rather than live in the house to which he had come, is sent back to where she had come from. Judah has no intention of Tamar marrying Sheila. So what's going to happen to Tamar? Well, it seems that a long period unfolds. And Shua, Judah's wife, dies. And after Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirad the Adolamite went with him. And Tamar gets word of Judah's travel plans. And she disguises herself as a prostitute, lures her father-in-law, He's going to be paid a goat. Gets left his signet ring, his cord and his staff as a down payment, a guarantee. And so Judah goes home, sends a servant with the goat. Can't find this temple prostitute. And so the goat remains. It's very interesting as I look this week. The goat seemed to play a pretty big part in this family line. 
if you remember when Jacob deceived Isaac that he was Esau, what did he do? He put goat's fur on his arms to make him look hairy. Back in chapter 37, when it seemed that Joseph had been killed by wild animals, what did they do? They dipped his coat in goat's blood. And here we find a goat at the center of a deception as well. I don't think, I don't know if that's significant. I'll just put it out there as a freebie. And the truth is found out. Somebody says to Judah, your daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution and as a result she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. Seems so one-sided, doesn't it? I mean, Judah was hardly a man of restraint when he was going up to shear his cattle. The minute he gets wind of it, he goes, we need a bonfire. But you see, Tamar's ahead of the game. She sent a message, I am pregnant, to the man who owns these, and Judah's mortified. Truth is found out, the deception's unveiled, and Judah is undone. And so what do we make of this? How do we apply this to our lives? I think three things again. Firstly, I think Moses has done something really clever in his editorial work. That he's juxtaposed Judah's unrestraint, Judah's debauchery. And what are we going to learn next? We're going to learn about Joseph's restraint and his celibacy. That again, he's showing Joseph's unusual obedience, his unusual character over and over against the mire and the pit that he comes from. That his faithfulness shines out all the more against the backdrop of the family that he comes from. First one, juxtaposition. Judah's debauchery set aside, set against Joseph's celibacy. Secondly, I think this is a real turning point in Judah's life. We saw in chapter 37 that Judah was quite keen on making a quick buck from his brother. That he has ten brothers in the field, he's thinking two pieces of silver, that's a great day's work. We see him here, he's not exactly a knight in shining armor, he's a rat bag. But we see in chapter uh, chapter 38, verse 26, a real turning point. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. She is more righteous than I. This is an omission of guilt on Judah's part. His omission of sin. You could say that this is repentance. And actually, we're going to see that this is a defining moment in Judah's life. Before chapter 38, verse 26, he is a rapper. The next time we're going to see him, he is um, Jacob's chief carer. He's going to be the one who says, no, I'll take Benjamin's place. And we're going to see that this confession of guilt is the hinge on which that transformation happens. Repentance is always the hinge on which transformation happens. That when we come to God and say, do you know what, I've messed up. 
I'm guilty and deserve nothing, and yet there's Jesus. That's when transformation happens. Repentance is key in Judah's life. Lastly, and with this we're done, Judah is a key inclusion. As we looked at last week, it is through Judah that the promised seed would come. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18, will take this son who seems to um, just pip his brother to the post to be born. Is in Ruth chapter 4, verse 18, and it's from Perez. We go down and we go down and we get to Obed. And Obed is the father of David. We see back in Matthew chapter 1 that Tamar is included in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. So significant. Because Tamar's a Gentile and an outsider. And yet we see that the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, happens three generations later. It's almost as though Jesus is choosing his ancestors to show the kind of people whom his death would mean salvation for. To show the depth and breadth of his inexhaustible grace. Because there's four women in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar, a Gentile who pretends to be a prostitute. Rahab, a Gentile who is actually a prostitute. Ruth, who is an outsider, not a prostitute, but a Moabite, who's a descendant of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And Bathsheba, who's an adulterer. Do you think that Jesus chooses his ancestors to show the inexhaustible grace that his death will mean for all who will come to him in repentance and faith? You look at that genealogy and you see that there is no limit to God's grace. That he pours it out. He makes outsiders insiders. He makes the unclean clean. And he makes those with, without hope and without God in the world children of the living God who will inherit eternal life by grace, through faith, in Christ. Why don't I pray? Father God, we do pray that your word would resonate with us as we go on from this place. Father, that what is your truth said on our hearts would continue to reverberate in our lives. Father, that we would live in the light of grace. That it would shape everything about us. It would mean obedience. Father, it would mean counting the cost. It would mean giving up comfort in order to be dangerous for the Lord Jesus. Father, may you use us this week to make outsiders insiders. May you use us to make creatures of wrath into children of the living God. And Father, will you do it all for your glory, by the power of your Spirit, in order that your grace would have effect in the lives of people in our life. Father, do this for the glory of your Son, we pray. In his mighty name. Amen.